Sports Hour on Twin Cities News Talk is presented by Sandvold Financial Group. AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Justice and Drew along with Sam. 651-989-5855 if you want to take part in the show at any point throughout the morning. Newly elected chair, newly elected deputy chair, fresh off the uh, State Central Committee meeting over the weekend in St. Cloud. Welcome in studio to the show, Jennifer Carnahan and David Paul Pasco. Ahoy. Good morning. Thanks for uh, joining us this morning, guys. Thank you for and having us. Congratulations. We're very excited. Now that uh, it's been, it's been what, Saturday was, uh, was the, was the state, state central committee meeting. You've had one day to sort of take the deep breath and be like, all right. Right. How, how are you feeling now after, uh, after all these weeks and months of, of campaigning and working the delegates and to have finally have achieved, you know, what you were working towards. Now it's time to, to put the nose of the grindstone and the hard work really begins. It does. I think it's an exciting time for our party to have new leadership and, you know, Dave and I are both of a younger generation, so we have a lot of work to do. And right after this, we're heading over to the office and we're having a really comprehensive transition meeting. So it's time to start moving. You were the two youngest candidates in running each race. In, in, yeah. each, in each race. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. That, that's great. I mean, what do you think it says about the about the Minnesota GOP, about the Republican Party in Minnesota, that two activists yeah. "Quote unquote outsiders, sure. more or less young." <laughs> what do you think that says about where the Minnesota GOP is and where it wants to go from here? Well, I think that it's it's some excitement with. I mean, it, it's not just the youth, but the the newer folks that are in the party. A lot of new folks came into the party last year, so uh, people want to hope they want to help build the party up, and I think that that was maybe part of the representation or part of the things that we're bringing to the table is just we're going out there and we have no preconceived notions as to what can and can't happen. We want to win everything in 2018. And and that's what we're going to be working for. And I think they liked the messages that we both brought throughout our campaigns because we both kind of talked, we talked about different things. We were running in different races, but at the core, we were both talking about, you know, bringing energy, enthusiasm, uniting the party, working hard to strengthen our grassroots and just build that connectivity around the state. When it comes to winning a, a, a intra-party election like this, how much of it is, in your opinion, message and how much of it is the sort of retail side of getting, you know, meeting the delegates, calling the delegates, shaking their hands, getting to know them, talking to them personally? What sort of combination of the two do you think really set you guys apart? I think it was both because all, all of the candidates in this race, both for chair and deputy chair, everyone was out there working hard. I mean, we all traveled around the state for four months showing up at all these BPOUs. I put over 20,000 miles on my car. I'm sure everyone else did the same. I made a joke at one point saying, why aren't we carpooling? We're more fiscally responsible. We got to yeah. follow through on that. Yeah. <laughs> one of the, the first time that we met, uh, Jennifer, you were running for office. When did you make the, the, the switch and, and think about this particular position um had you had you thought about that prior or was this something that sort of gradually over time he said yeah maybe i can go and 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 be the chair yeah it it was something that had come up by a couple people during my senate race but it was nothing i ever gave serious consideration to until you know after my race was over and then there were some conversations going on from people saying you know hey we were really impressed how you went into one of the most liberal districts in the state just attacked it and brought such a positive message, flipped votes, did good things for our party. So how can we keep you engaged? And, you know, when I was thinking about what's the best way for me to stay involved in the party, 
the reason that I thought about party chair in a leadership role is because of my business background, is I think that our party has tremendous opportunity to kind of approach this in a different way to turn our state red because we haven't won statewide in 10 years. I just think we need to try things a little bit differently. And that's kind of what sparked my interest and enthusiasm in achieving the role. How much did that, did did the running for office experience sort of give you an extra layer of, did it give you an extra layer of confidence when when seeking the chair seat? Uh, I don't know that it did because it's a totally different type of campaign because when you're running, you know, just in a general election, you're just out canvassing and, you know, you might hit people one time because there's just not enough time to hit if you have 80,000 people in district and it's more of a you know, direct mail and showing up at events, whereas this truly is getting out there, sharing a plan and vision on a more detailed level, getting to know the activists, building authentic relationships, and then, you know, starting to kind of build that trust. Sure. Uh, David, we were talking um, off air. Um, I'm I'm fascinated by the fact that you would work behind the scenes mm-hmm. um, and, and worked for a lot of different people and, and, and did a lot of support and activism. And then you put yourself out in front. Yeah, because a lot because a lot of times the individuals who sort of work behind the scenes are the ones that, well, I, I see it. I, I know what they go through. I don't want to put myself there. Sure. But you decided to go ahead and jump in and, and put yourself in the front. Oh, yeah. When I when I entered the race in December, um, I, I announced at the Young Republicans Christmas party uh, that they had. And I said, OK, I'm, I'm jumping in. And there weren't anyone. Else, there wasn't anyone else in the race at that point. And it was it was very odd to be the guy out front and campaigning for four months. And after working for other candidates and, and working, I was the chair of the 5th Congressional District. So that's the area in and around Minneapolis. And after working behind the scenes for other people it was it was weird to just be making calls on my own behalf but i treated it like a job interview most of the delegates that i was talking to they were asking me questions about not you know my ideas on policy you know that was important for some people but they were asking me like what i was going to be doing what i was going to be working on and and how i was going to be able to help so that's that's the way that i approached it well that's something that's kind of unique about running for these positions is you're not running for political office uh you you know what you do is political by nature and your ideology your positions are certainly important Mm -hmm. but in in a large sense these are somewhat administrative positions where you're just trying to keep the party functioning raising money, paying bills, supporting candidates. Mm-hmm. You're not out there sort of setting policy or setting platforms. For those that might not be aware, we're talking to uh, Jennifer Carnahan and David Paul Pasco, the newly elected chair and deputy chair of the uh, Minnesota GOP. Jennifer, we'll start with you. For those that aren't familiar with intra-party workings, what what do, what what is the job of the chair? What is the job of the deputy chair? Are these defined positions or do you sort of set the, are you able now to sort of set the tone as like, all right, as chair, this is what I'm going to do. And as deputy chair, this is what you're going to do. I think it's a little bit of both. You know, when we get into this meeting later today, we'll sit down and kind of flesh out, you know, down to the details, what we think our different job descriptions are. But on an overarching level, the role of the chair is to fundraise. That's number one, number one priority. 75% of the job is, you know, bring money into the party. Yeah, (laughs) Get rid of the debt, retire the debt and build a financially strong organization so we can set ourselves up for success when we really enter into the heart of 2018 for those elections. I think that's number one. And then number two is kind of defining and building out the strategy and the vision forward so that everyone in our party from the leadership level down to the grassroots activists has a clear path and vision of where we're trying to go so that we're all moving to the same goal Mm -hmm. and that it's not disconnected and 
Yeah, Dave can talk a little bit about what he thinks for deputy chair. Oh, sure. Well, it's uh, it's not a defined role, really. I mean, the chair in the Constitution has a lot of specific things that she has to do. For the deputy chair, it's be ready to take over, and it doesn't really describe what you have to do to be ready. So going out, uh, and my two other competitors in the race, uh, Andy Aplikowski and Jennifer DeJournet, were outstanding activists, and they, they brought a lot of experience to it as well. But we were all kind of trying to define what the back office responsibilities, and we all had different ideas in that part, uh, but we were all approaching it like we should be there supporting the chair, and whoever would have won my race would have been doing the same thing, and I think that that's a, a worthwhile uh, a worthwhile approach to it. So we're staying out of each other's lanes, and we're supporting each other. 651-989-5855. If you want to take part in the conversation, you can also email uh, Andrew Lee at iHeartMedia.com, Justice at iHeartMedia.com, and also on Twitter, use the hashtag TCNT. I want to talk to you guys coming up in the next segment about the current state of the GOP, what, you know, what your priorities are immediately Immediately, what you know? What 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 is the strength of the party that you're inheriting, and where do we go from here? We're talking to Jennifer Carnahan, David Paul Pasco, more with uh, Justice and Drew coming up next. Win a copy of A Dog's Purpose on Blu-ray in stores May second. For more information, visit TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com keyword contest. Justice and Drew, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, along with Sam. And again, 651-989-5855 at any point you want to join the show this morning. Yeah, we've got a question for our guest, Jennifer Carnahan, David Paul Pasco, the newly elected chair, deputy chair of the Minnesota GOP. Feel free to call, hit us up on Twitter, use the hashtag TCNT, or you can email Andrew Lee at iHeartMedia.com, justice at iHeartMedia.com. We were just talking off air sort of about getting back into the roles and positions and both of you being relatively new um again you see it more as like as a as a collaborative effort i mean are you are you looking at defined roles or are you kind of just we're gonna we're gonna pull our resources together to try to execute what we want to do and, and a quick uh, addendum to that how, how much have you guys worked together up until this point did you, did you guys so, have an existing relationship? Well, when I was chair of the 5th Congressional District and uh, Jennifer was running for state Senate inside of CD5. So uh, we were supporting her and, uh, you know, financially and in other ways, too. And, you know, I saw it then and, and a lot of the things that I think the delegates saw is uh, she was something special in politics. She uh, tenacious, intelligent great organizer, like top-notch organizing skills. So um, I, I saw that when I was a congressional district chair supporting her in just her race. And, uh, yeah, we, we collaborated a little bit, but it wasn't like I was out doing all the door knocking with her because there were, uh, you know, a bunch of other races in the district that I had to focus on as well, yeah. Yeah, and I think to answer your question, I think this is a huge opportunity for us to become a strong collaborative leadership mm -hmm. team. And we're going to figure out those details later today. But our party's been so short-staffed, and we have so much to do that we need to actually start now because Democrats have already been working, that we just need to hit the ground running. We need to be a good, united, collaborative team. Let's talk about that real quick. What is the state of the party that you're, quote-unquote, inheriting? Financially, the, the debt of the party has made a lot of news over the, over the past few years, the working towards paying it off. Where, where is the party at right now? Well, we still do have financial debt that we'll need to continue to pay down as quickly as we can. But for this transition, um, Chairman Downey has actually done a really nice job with his leadership team in setting this new uh, Dave and I up for success in terms of, you know, prepaying down some debt, prepaying some expenditures and putting some money in the bank 
so that it's not hand to mouth today. It might be hand to mouth in a, in another a week, week or, or so, so yeah. but <laughs> but at least it gives us a little breathing room and it will allow us this time for transition and to get out there and start working. And there's some big things coming up. So next week there's an RNC meeting in San Diego. So Janet Byhoffer and Rick Rice, our committee man and committee woman and myself will be going out there for a week. And that's going to be a huge opportunity already out of the gate to start to establish these important connections on a national level. I mean, I've already been getting emails actually since Saturday um, from all the national organizations like the NRCC and the RGA and different things like that. The White House actually called yesterday. So people are aware of the transition, and I think people are excited. That's cool. Where does the... Where's the most, and and uh, and Dave, we'll start with you. Where's the most pressure come from? Do you think as you as you head into this, where, what are you looking at? Going, that's going to be the that's going to be the difficult thing. Uh, difficult thing. I mean, it's fundraising. It's making sure that we can uh, pay the bills. We've we've gotten under a million dollars in debt, which is a great thing. You know, like still paying off that legacy debt from from the recount and everything. Uh, I think the biggest thing that the activists are looking for is uh, help with data and data management because that's something that a lot of people understand door knocking. A lot of people understand phone calling and whatnot, but around the state, uh, some of the tools that we're providing at the state party uh, need to be better and they need Mm. to be more accessible to the the rank and file activists. So I think that that's specifically one of the things I want to work on. And and that's that's one of the bigger challenges because that's a big system to to put right. You can't you you can't grow unless you you're able to identify the places where things aren't working um, as well as they should. So to to you, uh, Jennifer, where do where do you need to focus to change things for the for the better in order to grow the party to do a better job? Yeah, I think one key area is building stronger connectivity with our grassroots, so our BPOU organizations and CDs around the state, and that's something Dave championed in his campaign message and something I talked about as well, as we know the importance of engaging our activists and giving them a seat at the table and a voice in the process because when people are aligned and a part of something from the buildup, then they're more likely to get behind it and want to drive forward. So that's one key area. And as Dave talked about the data, I mean, that's something we need to figure out because if we can be better with data and identifying people, again, that's going to just set all of our candidates up for success in 2018. Let's take a uh, call. Al from Minneapolis. Good morning. Good morning. I know it's early yet because I know the officials just uh, got their positions, but I'm very interested, and I think a lot of Republicans are, in seeing if we can take back one of those Senate seats I don't think it would happen with Precious Amy, but uh, maybe uh, Al Franken is vulnerable. What do you think? Well, our goal is to try and win everything in 2018. And again, I think we have a huge opportunity. You know, I said this in my speech on Saturday, but when you have the right messenger and the right message and our team is all working together or our party's working together, we can be very powerful across Minnesota. And, you know, I'm not going to be afraid to get out there and speak out about the Democrat policies that, you know, don't align with our values and to try to open people's hearts and minds to our values and message. And that's something that we're going to start working on right out of the gate. Winning those statewide races has been a massive hurdle for the GOP for a long time. Uh, What's your confidence level going into this next batch of elections, the governor's race, the real huge opportunity in this next cycle for the GOP. There's going to be a lot of disarray and discord over on the DFL side, more than we've seen in recent years. Governor's race is wide open. Talk a little bit, we'll start with you, David, about your your confidence levels going into specifically statewide elections. Yeah, uh, absolutely, because there there was a sea change in the last election, and a lot, you know, there was a big... Um, 
there was an article that came out yesterday, the day before, about the Democrats understanding what happened in the election in 2016. And it wasn't necessarily just an issue of the base. It was an issue of defectors, people that were changing their minds, like uh, regular Democrat voters. Um, my father was one. He's a Democrat. Uh, he's probably one of the most conservative people I know, but he uh, he changed his mind on who he was voting for, and he did not vote for Hillary, you know. Uh, and, and there were a lot of voters like that in the state of Minnesota, especially in the 1st, 7th, and the 8th congressional districts. Keeping them in the party means winning elections solidly for a long time. Yeah. And I think that, that that gives me a lot of confidence for 2018, for the governor's race especially. There was some um, alluding to in one of the articles we read earlier this morning, they were trying to make the comparison, and I think there's two ways to look at this. They were trying to make the comparison of Donald Trump's win and a desire from from voters of uh, having you as the chair saying, well, this is obviously just a continuation of people wanting something different. And we, we talked back and forth. There's a mirroring going on, obviously, um, the, the lack of being elected to a position, the business background, and then getting this position is one thing but do you do you feel do you get a sense and you guys can both answer and jennifer will start with you do you get a sense that this was an extension of the reason why um trump got elected that you're both and you are sitting in these positions or do you think it just happens to be th- circumstance that your background somewhat mirrors the 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 president's I think it might actually be more of the latter, because if you think about the voting body who voted on us, it's a very small group, 340 people that are really the core activists engaged, of the party. They're engaged. engaged. And when you think about that body, you know, there's not a lot of turnover every two years when they're elected. So 60 to 70 percent of that group, those have been the you know important activists that have been in our party for, you know, 10, 20 30 years. So I think it might be more coincidental. I mean, there definitely is a Trump wave and that, you know, message of change going on. But I also think the message of, you know, someone with good business experience, someone with a plan, someone who has a vision for the party really resonated with people. Well, and there seemed to be a tinge of them wanting to diminish the win when we were reading the article this morning. What do you what do you think? Uh, What do I think specifically about how what the delegates mood were when they when they voted for us? Uh, You know, for me, going back to what I talked about with it being a job description, people weren't interested in how I was going to fight you know, the ship, you know, how I was going to you know, use the party uh, as a weapon. It was how I was going to manage the party to give them the tools to yeah. do it. Uh, so I think that there's maybe a little bit of overlap. But for me and my role as deputy chair, they wanted to know what I was going to be doing for them uh, on their in their county districts or their counties and their Senate districts. How much did in your conversations with delegates, you know, leading up to the vote and and, and, and your job interview portion mm-hmm. of it, how much did Trump and your support or lack thereof of Trump during the general to come up in those conversations? Not that much. Uh, I mean, I was, you know, out there as the fifth congressional district chair and supporting the president. That was, that was my job to do that, uh, of course. And it wasn't really a factor. I, I think, um, like, like Jennifer said, most of the people that were the delegates had been there for a long time. So, uh, they were really looking for like what we were going to do, not, uh, what we thought of one or two issues. There are, of course, a couple people that we talked to that were really wanted to focus on abortion or really wanted to focus on something else. But yeah, Jennifer Carnahan, congratulations. Thank you. Well done, David Paul Pasco. Congratulations. Thank you kindly. Well done. We uh, will surely uh, be talking to you many times over the course of these uh, the next several months and years uh, as your role in uh, chair and deputy chair of the Minnesota GOP. Thanks for coming in.
Coming up on Twin Cities News Talk, uh, we have an update on uh, the spat between the Minneapolis Mayor Betsy Hodges and the uh, police chief. Uh, plus, I love the uh, the hashtag that's been assigned to this. Yeah, a pointer gate. Yeah, and and we'll also get into a problems for another a mayoral candidate uh, in St. Paul. That continues uh, to get worse and worse. It's all coming up on Twin Cities News Talk. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Justice and Drew along with Sam. Hey, uh, you know what I did yesterday apart from watch a horrible uh, NASCAR race? <laughs> What's that? Uh, I, I went to uh, went to St. Paul. You should ask me why I, why I went to St. Paul. Why did you uh, make the trek from uh, your lovely town of Blaine into the urban jungle of St. Paul? Pokemon. What? <laughs> what? Apparently, Kyle got it. My ten-year-old got it into its head that all the good Pokemon no! are in are in Rice Park. So I decided to accompany. How thing? did he find that out? I did. I, I accompanied them on their journey. Really wish I hadn't. It was a very quiet. You guys know when I get into a bad mood and I could just get quiet. Yeah, that's what that was me in the car. That, uh, so you're talking about Pokemon Go? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's still a thing. Oh, it is with my with with, with my son. I thought, I thought that died out just, months ago. It's just not as big of a craze. Right. But I think there's still people that yeah. do it. Yeah. I thought that they were going to like a park to which we would park, and then he would go and search them out. That's the that's the idea of the game, right? You're I, supposed to walk around. Not in the version that we play, which is me <laughs> driving my car no. and then him telling me. <laughs> no! Go left, go right. No, God, please, Go right no. here, no. go left. No. Mm-mm. No. You know what you just did? I mean, no. you, so you, you did it for him once, and now he's going to want you to do it every week. No, no, I'm pretty sure. Melinda went with us. I'm pretty sure she will not be inviting me on that journey again. I think I saw. I think I, I think my silence solved that problem. Yeah. And down the there by the energy. household by the, by the energy Excel center, like, there's a lot of one-way streets. And it was fair. Mm, it's not. <laughs> no. Man. No. That is no. not. That, no, no. That's not a fun. No. You don't go driving around. In the, there. You park it, and walk. In the rain. Park and walk. No. No, no. See, that's the kind of dad I am. That I won't be again. <laughs> Star Tribune this morning. Oh, this is this is getting. It continues to just get good, in a, in a bad, hor- horrific way because Hodges is a disaster. Uh, Minneapolis Mayor Betsy Hodges on Saturday said she strongly believes that uh, Lieutenant John Delmonico is the wrong person. It's strongly now, and there's a reason why she did that, to lead the Northside 4th Precinct and insisted that the chief deliberately failed to give her more notice on the controversial appointment. Now, the whole reason this came down was over the weekend, uh, the chief put out text messages. She shared text messages of the exchange between herself and Hodges, right? Uh, after Hartow an- announced the appointment on Thursday, right? So in a statement, uh, the chief declined to delve further into the public rift. She said, beyond clarification I provided yesterday, I don't feel the situation should be played out in public any further, right? As in the past, I know the mayor and I will work together to find a viable solution. Hodges said that when she texted, great, love that, She was responding to the chief's message that Delmonico had managed the politics and was not signing off on the appointment. What it made it sound like when the chief came out is the chief putting these text messages out, at least in my opinion, it made it look like Hodges signed off. Mm -hmm. The chief went and announced the appointment. Yep. And Hodges only signed off to get her to announce the appointment so she can say, no, I'm not going to let you do it. 
That's what it looks That's like. Ki- I kind of had the same. I mean, there's two ways that this could have gone, either either that way or just a genuine miscommunication between Harto and Hodges, specifically when she sent that great love, that text. Harto maybe meant the, took that as, oh, okay, she's cool with it, so I'll announce it. Or, like you said, putting it out there in a way to make it appear as if she approved it and then public approved it privately and then rejected it publicly. Which makes more sense when you consider how short a period of time there was, because that was the scuttle last week when we talked about it, was that there was such a short period of time between when the chief made the decision and went public with it. To me, it makes more sense. I mean, and again, we're just it's it's speculation, but it's fun. It makes more sense that the chief thought that the mayor was signing off on this and went forward. Right. Now you have the you have the bit about her asking her to come to the office. So you know if the chief started to think, well, she may rescind this. The heck with it. I'm moving forward on this on this anyway. But like Nick said on Friday, man, this the whole thing's a disaster. The it whole is. thing is nothing is. more than a mess. And in this story, uh, Hodges pretty much confirms that uh, that, that the Pointer Gate incident is the main reason why uh, she disapproved of Delmonico. She's quoted here saying, I did not look at Facebook. I mean, come on. The idea that I needed Facebook to tell me that John Delmonico, the central figure in Pointergate, would have a negative impact on community trust is absurd. Well, there it is. There it is. Pointergate, clearly uh, the incident in which Delmonico, the then head of the police union, accused the mayor of flashing gang signs in a photograph with a man named Navelle Gordon. The uh, episode attracted widespread derision and angered many people on the north side. Now, the Star Tribune did confirm that the chief did inform the council member Lisa Goodman and the council president Barb Johnson that she wanted to appoint Delmonico to the 4th Precinct Post before she told the mayor by text messages at uh, 10.01 a.m. on Wednesday. It is time for the council members to get off the fence and not run and hide, Hodges said. I, if they think Delmonico is the best possible choice to lead the 4th Precinct, they need to say so. Well, why? You already said no. Yeah. So what does it matter at this point? And the city charter allowed, complete, uh, clearly allows you to do that. I mean, she's well within her rights to uh, to say no and to reject the appointment. Now, Hodges did go it's on done. to it's, say the— nothing uh, else to do. The text messages didn't tell the whole story. Uh, saying, and I quote, when we were speaking on the phone in the afternoon, the chief got quite angry and she admitted that she fully anticipated in advance in advance that I would object to the appointment. Hodges went on to say, and she told me the failure to provide advance notice was a conscious choice. You know, my biggest takeaway from this is that Hodges is the worst. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, look, even if you're... She's really bad. I mean, from a policy standpoint, obviously, but even apart from that, I mean, those that agree with her on the political side of things, she still, how can you just, there's no one, she should be number one on the worst mayor's list, not number two. She's number one in my heart. Co-host of uh, Black Republican, Black Democrat, which you can hear every Saturday right here at uh, on TCNT, Saturdays at six. Jamar Nelson, I know you got some thoughts on this. Good morning, Jamar. Good morning, guys. Good. Hey, the I understand that the way I understand it is Hodges, excuse me, uh, Harto uh, told Barb Johnson and uh, Lisa Goodman, I believe it was months before, 
uh, now. So this is now, both of them are being uh, a bit dishonest. Hodges knew that she wanted to appoint Delmonico, so she told, went to Barb because she knew how Barb is so powerful. Barb Johnson, you know, her family being political, and she knew that if she had to support, she thought anyway, if she had to support a Bob jo Barb Johnson, she would put pressure on Hodges to go ahead and approve the appointment. So she told them months ago about it. So when she had a chance to text, she now that's true enough, she did text Hodges, but she also gave Hodges, she told Hodges that if you're going to, you'd have to strip him of the appointment. I won't. I've made my decision. Mm -hmm. So Hodges said, okay, I will. So the bottom line is, both of them need to go. Both <laughs> yeah, I agree. They're we we actually agree. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Jamar, go. Jamar, hang on one second. Let, let, let's back up a little bit here. Uh, from people I've talked to and from what I've been able to read about this Delmonico guy, it sounds like he's done a very good job if you're just looking at sort of the metrics of police work in his time at his current position within the 4th Precinct. If you take away, and then I want your opinion on this, if you take away the Pointer Gate incident, do you think that this would be a, an acceptable and good appointment? Take away the point, pretend Pointer Gate didn't happen. Just look at the metrics of his job as a police officer, as a leader of police, and what's gone on within the 4th Precinct in the time that he's uh, he's been there these last uh, this last year or so. I would have to say no. He doesn't have a good relationship with the community. And that started back when he uh, made some strong accusations against uh, former council member Natalie Johnson Lee. So the black community, the, the minority community of North Minneapolis was pretty upset and irate with DeMonaco. DeMonaco doesn't have a good relationship with him. Harto knew this. Hodges was put in a bad position because she also knew that Harto knew that no one wanted DeMonaco over it. So... I don't understand why Harto decided to point them to Monaco, frankly, because they're pretty tight, and he's a, one of Harto's yes-men. But when he, when she knew that he didn't have a good relationship, why, upon, why put Hodges in that bad position when you personally knew that he didn't have a good relationship with and half of the, the, the officers in that particular precinct? They're already mad with Harto about the appointment, uh, about the, um, the motion of uh, free slaving, and the community wants this guy around. Harto says no. She's got Charlie Cook now appointed. We think that she appointed Charlie Cook because he's black, and she thinks that that will satisfy the, the anger in the black community. Jamar, they both need to go. It, Jamar, it, it seems to me that regardless of... Well, let me not say regardless. It seems to me that none of this should be playing out in this way at all. I mean, I'm just, I'm sort of like, I'm, I'm, I'm adding to your, they both need to go. I mean, regardless of politically how you feel about Hodges or the job that you think the chief has done, the reality is this is not how leadership should be conducting themselves with one another in any way, shape, or form. Agendas aside, I think it's ridiculous that we're having these, I called her to my office, she didn't come. I sent this text, here they are, but now I'm not going to say anything else in public anymore. It's like, Give me a break. They're acting like a bunch of children. And here's one more thing. Here's one more thing, John. The fact is, uh, Hodges didn't want to keep Harto when she was elected. She was There was a little pressure put on her to keep, again, the, uh, a lady and a minority. So she decided to keep them. She wanted some uh, police chief, I think, out of Boston or someplace, some, uh, some other state. So 
the fact that you knew that you didn't have a good working relationship with the chief shows that she's a spineless mayor. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get rid of her. She started talking about the um, she'd have to have just cause to fire her, otherwise the city would be out of a bunch of money. Well, you renewed her. You renewed her knowing that you didn't have a good relationship with her, and her relationship with the community is eroding, and she kept her. So we got a spineless mayor, again, I'll say, I'm sorry for the third time, broken record, that needs to go and decided decided that because of her political uh, attache, she would keep her so that they would be on one accord. I I just don't get Harto and I don't get uh, Hodges. It's, It's ridiculous. (laughs) <laughs> Jamar, thank you for uh, thank, thank you for you your providing your perspective on this. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Have a good morning. Take care. Drew, you want to uh, keep with the theme of uh, of uh, Democrats failing? Sure. I got a couple more here. Uh, St. Paul, uh, a city council member out of the uh, Star Tribune, mayoral candidate uh, Dai Tao, fired his campaign manager Saturday. Yeah. Uh, allegations arose that she solicited a bribe from a lobbyist, according to a, a Fox 9 News report. That is now being referred to for a criminal probe. Yeah. Well, on top of it now. Pretty clear. According to the news report, Tao met with an unnamed lobbyist, two of the lobbyists' clients at a St. Paul coffee shop in February to talk about an upcoming council vote. Tao repeatedly told the lobbyist that, quote, he needed resources so he could spread his message. Oh. I don't know what resources he was referring to. Lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, and, that, and and the the report said gave, that gave the lobbyist the strong impression that Tao was talking about a campaign contribution. Hours later, hours after this meeting, where he said, "I, I need I need resources to spread my message," Angela Marlowe, Tao's campaign manager, texted the lobbyist saying, "Di asked me to see if I could get a donation from your clients or yourself Ooh. for his mayor campaign." Ooh. My understanding is that they are leaving tomorrow. We will certainly rethink this issue. The lobbyist reportedly told Marlowe that her text could be interpreted as a bribe request. <laughs> you think? Yeah. You know, we could uh, we, we could use a donation. We need resources to help spread our message, and we will certainly rethink this issue. Marlowe said that uh, this was a rookie mistake one can make. You know, if you want to hold me to the fire, go ahead. You want to you take my words literally. But it's not fine. about to Hightow. You know what? I think... Uh, I think the bigger mistake here uh, from the uh, St. Paul City Council member, Dai Tao, I think he should have waited on calling for that uh, resolution for the investigation of Trump. Could have used that one right now to sort of take the focus off off of him at this point in time. I think it's safe to say that his chances are, if he had any, are getting smaller of him actually winning that winning that seat. Um, Drew, would you like to continue? <laughs> With de- with there's with, more. Yeah, there is more. But wait, it's like there's but wait, there's more. So you got Hodges, you got the chief, you got Dai Tao. Now, again from the Star Tribune, you know it's bad when you have the editorial board. Okay, at the Star Tribune, calling out uh, public school leaders. Mm. You 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 know you've got a problem. Yeah, when you, when you lose the editorial board of the Star Tribune, you got issues. Board members irresponsibly reversed, uh, reversed staffing decisions. Yeah, members should understand how to be responsive to their constituents without micromanaging day to day operations. Now, as we've covered, the Minneapolis school board 
recently blew that basic governance 101 principle, according to the editorial. During that April 18th meeting, board members were confronted by more than 100 angry protesters, including some MPS staff, who alleged that some educators of color were let go because of racism and because they advocated for their students. They pleaded with the board to reinstate those who were laid off in response the board passed a resolution that called for the educators to be rehired or be given recommendations to be rehired. So without additional information and without consulting their administration or the principals who made the staffing decisions, they made the snap call to appease the protesters. And the thing that's leaked, that's uh, that's missing from the editorial is the fact that in that resolution, they actually admitted. Yeah. That they oh yeah we did it because yeah. we were because we're Literally. racists we're well, horrible well, and I don't even say they admitted that they were racist they kind of threw the people that made the layoff decisions yeah. under the bus saying yeah they probably did it because they were racist and that's I think you know rightfully so got these principals so upset in the editorial later on uh, says they do not they said they did not make layoff decisions lightly and were frustrated that the board sided with the protesters without investigating the details of the dismissals absolute. 100% utter failure yeah. on part of the board to not tell the protesters, fine, all right, you guys are upset, we'll look into it. And that's all they needed to say, we'll look into it. And then they go talk to the principals. Instead, they just caved. They just caved in, in a cowardly fashion, said, yeah, clearly there's uh, racism here. We'll uh, we'll do what we can to get them all their, job, their jobs back. Yeah, the superintendent was faced with a $28 million budget gap for the coming school year. That's what they, so he had to make reductions in staff. I do wonder this social justice education movement, when they got what they wanted when they walked out, do you think they all, like all angry, right, right, just right, do their chanting, and then they walked out, and they all kind of stopped and smiled. I can't believe we got away with that. <laughs> I, I never... I never, I, I never actually believed that they would cave. Yay, us. They, uh, they add at the end of the editorial, nearly 36,000 students and their families deserve better. And look, just to add a part on this, obviously a horrible decision, but it also raises concerns of what their other decisions have been. Yeah. That's the part of this that, that it, it, it raises that question and those concerns. If they made a decision this bad, on something that absolutely could have been avoided if they had just acted like leaders, then what has the rest of their decision-making been like? And maybe, maybe that's a problem why we have one of the problems why we have a, you know, difficulty in public schools with, like, education and stuff. Mm. Yeah, poor and uh, incompetent leadership. Coming up next, we're going to talk to a voice of the Vikings, Paul Allen. The uh, NFL draft took place over the weekend. Vikings did not have a first-round pick, but they uh, made a lot of moves in the subsequent rounds and uh, added some key players to the program. We'll get his thoughts on the uh, Vikings draft hall. Also, a note, a, a note has sparked protesting and outrage on a local campus. Uh, a, no, a, a note. A, a note. A note that one person left to another person. A, a note. Yeah.